Well, as we prepare to open up God's word together, will you join me in prayer? Lord, we do gather together, at least in a spiritual sense, beneath the cross of Christ. Which is to say, the only reason that we're worshipers of you, the only reason that we can come to receive your grace and praise your name is because Christ has died for us. And so, Lord, we come gladly trusting in that work of Christ, knowing that Christ has paid it all, which is good because there's nothing we could add to it anyway. And so we come humbly as sinners who have been forgiven completely by the work of Christ, and we come humbly as sinners who continue to need your grace. And Lord, we recognize that even as we follow after Christ and the salvation, in this life we follow after Christ in that the path to ultimate glory is the path of suffering. Lord, just as Christ had to come and suffer and die in submission to You for our salvation, we as saved people often suffer in submission to You, awaiting for Your final glorification and exaltation of us. So what we pray for now as we enter back into our study of the book of Lamentations is we pray that through this passage of Scripture, Lamentations 3, that You would strengthen our conviction in the truth, that You would grow our faith in Christ, that You would prepare us to follow after Christ no matter what the cost, holding on to the joy and hope that You have set before us in the promise of eternal life. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can grab your Bible and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. After a little bit of time away for the holidays and other things, we are finally back into our study of the book of Lamentations. And we find ourselves back in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 28 through 39. And as... We've been walking through this passage, just by way of reminder, since it's been a little bit since we've been in this text. We've seen over the course of our study that Lamentations chapter 3 shows us how God's people should personally handle suffering in their life. Essentially, in this passage of Scripture, the prophet is allowing us a window into his own heart to see how he dealt with suffering. And then he is exhorting us in how we should handle suffering. And so in our study of the chapter so far, we've discussed the role of faithfulness in suffering, which is to say our main goal as God's people in suffering must be faithfulness to God, not uh, relief and comfort for ourselves. We've seen the role of hope in suffering, which is to say when we are standing on the promises of God, we have a sure and steady hope to guide us and anchor us in the midst of the most profound suffering. We've seen the role of grace in the midst of our suffering, and what a sweet role that is to know that not only has God forgiven us of our sins, but as His children, we have the promise of His ongoing help, His ongoing grace. We can, we can know, because God has promised it, we can know that amidst the most daunting circumstances, we have the help of our divine Father. That's a sweet promise, the promise of grace. 
We've also seen the role and the responsibility of our own faith in the midst of our suffering. What we have to recognize is that in the midst of suffering, our greatest need is not a change in our circumstance. Our greatest need is stronger and purer faith in Christ. There's no greater need in your life than faith in Christ. Whether that's faith unto salvation or whether that's increasing faith as a child of God. There's no greater need in your life than faith. You need faith more than you need comfort. That's why the Lord will send difficult, uncomfortable circumstances into your life to grow your faith. And as we came into this particular set of verses, verses 28 through 39 in our study, we began to see that this passage focuses on the indispensable role of divine truth in the midst of personal suffering. If faith is your top priority in the midst of suffering, then you're also going to need truth. Because if you don't have something to believe, you don't have any belief at all. If you don't know what you believe, you don't believe. If there's no content of your faith, there really is no faith. So if you want to have stronger faith, what do you have to have? You have to have more truth to believe in, to trust in, to follow after. Additionally, you need the truth to guide you through the midst of your suffering, your circumstances. You can go at it with your own wisdom if you want. But the scriptures time and time again show us where that leads and it's not pretty. What we need is divine truth. What we need is the mind of God. And that's what we have in scripture. See, the Bible consistently teaches us that faithful endurance in the midst of suffering is the result in large part of allowing God's truth to shepherd your soul. That's what you need. You need to be guided, you need to be fed by the truth of God's Word in the midst of your suffering. You need truth. By the way, not to divert our attention from Lamentations chapter 3, but we see this in another very familiar passage that relates to suffering, that is James chapter 1. Many of you, if you're familiar with the Scriptures, you're familiar with the words of James chapter 1. You may not have memorized, but you're familiar with it. James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Right? You remember this? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then verse 5, sometimes we leave out verse 5, but verse 5 goes right in there with that. If any of you lacks wisdom, what kind of wisdom? The wisdom to know what in the world is going on in the midst of my trials. If any of you lacks wisdom, what do you do? Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, that is a familiar passage to you, and I, and I bring it up because in that passage... We see this role of truth in the midst of our suffering. In fact, as you have relied on this familiar passage in the midst of your trials in the past, have you ever noticed how truth saturated it is? You, you take the active role of biblical truth out of James chapter 1 and it's meaningless. It says, count it all joy or, or 
consider it all joy. That's, that's mind language. You've got to think through and process to get to the joy. James isn't just saying, look, no matter how bad it gets, you just need to feel happy. Look, our feelings are a result of what's going on in our heart, in our minds, in our faith. The feelings are the fruit, not the root. And what James is saying is, if you want to get to that joy of salvation, you've got to do some considering. You've got to do some thinking. You've got to engage your mind with the truth of God if you want to experience the joy of God. It also, in verse 3, says, for you know that the testing of your faith, have you ever noticed that before? So it doesn't just start with mind language, consider. It continues in verse 3 with, you need to know this. Well, where do we know things? We know things with our mind. James is saying, look, if you want to get to this place where you're faithful in suffering, and you even can experience a resolved joy in the midst of suffering, here's what you need to do. You need to know and be convinced of certain truths. Specifically, truths about how God uses trials to grow our faith. There's an engagement of the mind there. That, by the way, is also why in verse 5, James goes on to say, if you lack wisdom, what is wisdom? (laughs) Wisdom is applied knowledge. It's knowing how to take God's truth and put it to work in your circumstances. Uh, Wisdom is being able to to decipher your circumstances in light of God's truth. It's being able to find clarity on your situation based on what you find in the Bible. So often that's our biggest problem. We just need some clarity. I I need some clarity on this issue. I need some clarity on what's going on in my heart. I need clarity on how to respond to this situation. Well, where do we find that clarity? We find it from the scriptures. That's what wisdom is. And when we're praying to the Lord, give us wisdom, and we're considering truth and, 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 and reasoning towards joy, and we're knowing how He uses trials in our life, when we're engaging our minds with the truth, guess what God does? He gives wisdom. And of course, there's more to that, but we're studying Lamentations 3, not James 1. But the point in all of this is that At all times, but especially in the midst of our suffering, we need God's truth desperately. We need God's truth desperately. In fact, God's truth will anchor your soul in the midst of suffering. James goes on later in his epistle to talk about, in fact, later in those verses, that the man who doesn't trust the truth of God, he's like the waves driven and tossed back and forth. You ever felt like that? You're a storm-driven believer right now. Your faith is weak. You're not focused on the truth. You're not guided by the truth. You're not considering. You're not knowing. You're not counting it. You lack faith because you lack the truth in your life. You don't have any clarity on your circumstances. What do you need? In that moment, you need an anchor to hold you into place. And the Bible is that anchor. The Bible's not an anchor that weighs you down. The Bible is an anchor that keeps you in place. And in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 28 through 39, we find some specific truths that we will especially need in the midst of our suffering. In fact, we began to organize our thoughts around 
uh, last time we were studying this passage, around four different truths that we find in this passage that will sustain our souls in suffering. That these are four truths that you're going to want to have at arm's reach whenever the Lord sends a trial your way. Or maybe you're in the midst of that trial now. These are four truths that are going to equip us to get the most out of our trials that we can from a spiritual perspective. And when we are in this section last, before the holidays and before the new year, we saw the first of these truths in verses 28 through 30. Here we were reminded of the truth about God's trustworthiness. That's what we see in verses 28 through 30. The trustworthiness of God. You can trust God. In fact, let me read these verses for you. 28 through 30. Look how far you can trust God in the midst of your suffering. You can trust God so far to the point that, that here's what it says. Verse 28. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. That's this suffering, this trial, this discipline. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Here we're reminded of the trustworthiness of God. If you're in the midst of suffering, you can submit to that suffering and trust the Lord even in the midst of the worst circumstances imaginable. The prophet says you can sit alone. In other words, you can accept the Lord's discipline. You can trust God with the details of your life. You can, you can recognize without complaining that God is in control and He's got you right where He wants you to be. Those are more than just platitudes and, and meaningless statements. Those are the kind of truths that lead to submission. The prophet says you can trust God to the point where you put your mouth to the dust. That's, that's actually talking to the leaders of Judah saying, look, you will not submit to the Babylonians. What you need to do is you need to bow and submit to the Babylonians because they've been sent by the Lord. That's what that language is. Uh, put your mouth to the dust means you bow before the invading army. Man, they fought tooth and nail to the end. And the whole time God through the prophet was saying, you are going to lose, just submit now and it will be easier. And they wouldn't. Why? Well, ultimately, they would not submit because they didn't trust the Lord. And what the prophet is saying is, look, if this is what the Lord lays upon you, then you can submit to it no matter how bad it looks because God is trustworthy. In fact, even, even when individuals insult you, even when they strike your cheek, even when, when, when they heap false accusations upon you, is what they're doing right? No. But at the end of the day, the Lord's in control of even that. You can submit to the Lord to the point of even the loss of your reputation and mistreatment. The prophet knew what that was. He was called a traitor. Everybody was trying, we got to defend Judah. We got to defeat the enemy. And we can imagine even in our own political context, we want to defeat our enemies. And the people who want to defeat our enemies, we're patriotic, right? Can you imagine being the prophet who says, actually what the Lord wants us to do is uh, submit to our enemies. He was called a traitor. Was he a traitor? No, he was, he was speaking on behalf of the Lord. Talk about a smear campaign against the prophet. He understood what that was, but he also understood that the Lord was in control of all that and, and that he could trust those situations and circumstances and even the insults of other people. He could trust all that to the Lord. 
In fact, the, the increased intensity of the suffering that's described in these verses, it reminds us that there is no point at which we can tap out and stop trusting the Lord. And the reason for that is there's no point at which God ceases to be trustworthy. I, I hope that's a truth that you hold near and dear to your heart. I hope that's a truth that you run to often. Maybe you don't use that language. Maybe you use other language. But I hope you know that the Lord is good. I especially, the, the children in the congregation today, kids, uh, I, know you, I know you hear me. I know you hear me uh, uh, more than maybe even some of the adults think. You're listening. I see you. You're paying attention. Kids, what I want you to know is God is good. You don't have to understand all that that means right now. I don't understand all that means. And sometimes God does things that I don't like. But even when he does something that I don't particularly like or makes me uncomfortable, I know that God is good. You can trust the Lord, children. You can trust him with everything in your life. My prayer for you kids is that you will grow up loving the Lord and, and, and trusting the Lord with all that you are. You can give him your life. That's how trustworthy he is. And by the way, parents, you can trust the Lord with your kids too. He's that trustworthy. Even in the midst of profound suffering and frustration and accusations and opposition, as God's people, we can always stop and say, God is good and I can trust Him. I can trust Him. And you know what? We don't even have to know why He's doing what He's doing to be able to say that, do we? Very often, God doesn't give us the why. We just have to keep looking to the who. Job never got the why. But he knew the who much better afterwards, didn't he? God is trustworthy. We have to be armed with that truth if we're going to be faithful in the midst of our suffering. Additionally, and here's where we're kind of getting into some new territory in verses 31 through 33. Additionally, we find this second, a second sustaining truth in this section here. Here we find the truth about God's discipline. So we need to understand the trustworthiness of God, but we also need to understand something about the discipline of God and how that discipline works if we're going to be faithful in the midst of our suffering. Notice what these verses say. Verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Now, as we work through these particular verses, it's important for us to note that these verses were directed specifically at God's covenant people, not necessarily everyone in general. You see, God's discipline takes place in the context of His redeemed people. God disciplines those who are His children to grow their faith. But those who have rejected Him, those who are apart from them, those who are not believers in Christ, they don't receive the loving discipline of a father. Uh, the New Testament tells us, specifically Romans 1 tells us, that God hands those sinners over to their sin. If we're pushing the limits and we're headed down a dangerous road, our Heavenly Father, 
because we're his children, our heavenly father will often come in with his hand of discipline and redirect us towards safer paths. The unbeliever apart from Christ doesn't have that promise. In fact, apart from Christ, suffering in this life cannot be viewed as divine discipline. Suffering in this life must be viewed as a precursor to eternal suffering in hell. It's not discipline to make you more like Christ if you're apart from Christ. It's a warning that if you think this is bad, then you cannot imagine the imaginable, unimaginable suffering that will take place in hell for all those who have rejected Christ. I mean, that's a sobering reality, isn't it? A sobering reality. I mean, even as, we, even as we kind of gather these truths close to us and cherish them, we recognize that this is a privilege and it is a gift of grace that we are able to understand God's disciplining us for our good. For the unbeliever, apart from Christ, it's not for their good. It's just a precursor to eternal punishment in hell. That's why it's so vital that we take the news of the gospel to individuals like this. That's why it's so vital. If you're here today and you're apart from Christ, friend, you need to believe in Christ. The one who, who has paid the penalty for sin. The one who died on the cross. The one who was raised from the dead. The one who is seated on high in heaven. It's only through Him that we can look at our suffering through this lens. It's only through Him that we can be forgiven of our sins. It's only through Him that we can be the redeemed people of God. But because we are the redeemed people of God, it allows us to view our suffering in the context of God's discipline. In fact, not only can we view our suffering in the context of God's discipline, we must. We must understand that God is working in our life to grow our faith. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. The Lord will send His discipline into our life. Sometimes, occasionally, it's the result of a specific sin. Maybe there's a specific sin in your life and the Lord's just trying to protect you from it. And then it's very clear that draw the lines from, boy, this, this here, this trial, this suffering, this is discipline for this sin. I see that clearly. The Lord's protecting me. But more frequently, in fact, the vast majority of times, the Lord's discipline in our life isn't necessarily for a specific sin. Instead, it's just for our general immaturity. The, the Lord is sending these difficulties to us and he's, he's forcing us to trust Him in new circumstances and new situations so that more and more we can become like Christ. That's what God's doing. However, due to the unpleasantness of discipline, it is very easy for us to become disoriented in the midst of it, isn't it? It's very easy for us to jump to some faulty conclusions. Boy, I'm going through this situation, God must not love me. I'm going through this situation, I must not be a true believer. I'm going through this situation, man, I, I don't know what it is, but I must have some unbelievable sin in my life. Maybe I'm not a believer. Maybe I'm not this. Maybe I'm this. It's very easy for us to get disoriented, confused, and jump to some faulty conclusions. And that's why these verses were placed here. The prophet is making sure that Judah does not accept faulty conclusions about God's discipline and about God's nature. In fact, notice in verse 31 that the prophet reminds the people that God's discipline towards his people, it's not permanent. 
Verse 31, imagine how sweet these words would have sounded to, to the people of Jerusalem who were under discipline from God. Carried off into captivity, rejected by God. Verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever. What a sweet promise that is. However, behind the sweet promise, there's a significant reality here. And the reality is that God did cast his people off for a time. And cast off here, this is, this is covenant language, Old Testament covenant language signifying the rejection of God, uh, God's people. God rejected them. He sent them off into exile. The promised land that he had brought them into, he kicked them out of it. In a similar way that Adam was kicked out of the garden, Israel was kicked out of the land. He cut his people off from all the benefits of the covenant. He took the temple away from them. He alienated an entire generation of Jews from the blessings that come from being in a covenant relationship with God. However, as real as the casting off of these people was, the prophet is quick to interject that this is not a permanent situation. The Lord did cast off, but he will not cast off forever. You see, this discipline from the Lord, it did not represent a change in his promise, and it did not represent a permanent change in the relationship. That's key for us to understand. God's God's discipline of his covenant people Israel, it did not nullify his promises to them, nor did it permanently cut off the relationship with them. And in this way, we might say that the exile was a provisional and preparatory discipline. It was provisional, it was preparatory, it was for a time, it was for a purpose, it wasn't permanent. By the way, just as kind of a side note, uh, this exile of Israel, essentially, it still goes on today. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 11. In Romans 9, he makes it clear that the promises, that, that Israel still has the promises, present tense. But then he goes on in Romans chapter 11 to talk through some of these things. And he says in Romans 11.25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come on. And so in a sense, even today, in the era of the church, there remains this partial hardening. There remains uh, this cutting off of the covenant relationship with national Israel, not with individual Jews, of course. And of course, one day this will come to an end, right? Because Paul goes on in this very same passage of Scripture to remind us that very next verse, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. In other words, God will redeem his people. And there's certainly lots of details that go into that that we don't need to cover this morning. But the point is, the apostle Paul is confirming exactly what the prophet said. The Lord might 
cast off. The Lord might discipline, but this is not a permanent casting off. It's not forever. That's a significant point as we try to piece together the details of redemptive history and and put the whole Bible together. But maybe even more pressing, these are important details for us to understand in our own lives. You see, by implication, we learn something of God's discipline in this passage for our own lives. Which is to say, we learn that God's discipline is by its very nature preparatory, not permanent. When God disciplines His children, it's not an eternal discipline. We've been saved from that through the work of Christ already. When, when God disciplines His children, we, even in the midst of it, when it seems like it will never end, we can understand. You know what? I understand the nature of God's discipline. I understand what it says in Scripture. I understand the truth of this. And I know that this discipline is not permanent. Might last a long time. Might last the whole rest of my life. But it's not permanent. It's not eternal. It's not forever. This is certainly something of the point that we find in 2 Corinthians 4.17. There the Apostle Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We can trust that even in the midst of discipline, that God's disposition towards us has not changed. We can trust what Romans 8.28 says, that He's working for our good. As a child of God, you can be comforted to know whatever discipline you're enduring will not last forever. That helps you endure, doesn't it? That helps you endure. If you know this is not going to last forever. This is not going to last forever. Now that's not all we learn about God's discipline in this passage though. See, in addition to being temporary, verse 32 goes on to remind us that God's discipline is not unloving. Which is to say God's discipline is actually an act of love. Like When the Lord is disciplining you, when the Lord sends a trial your way for the purpose of your sanctification, you would be mistaken to look at your circumstances and say, wow, I don't even know if God loves me. According to Scripture, that would be a mistake. Notice what it says in verse 32. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion. Same word, by the way, from uh, uh, earlier in this chapter. His mercy. According to the abundance of his steadfast love, his chesed, his, his covenant faithful love. And notice... Let's, let's get down in the weeds and really pick this apart, okay? Look, look at the beginning of verse 32. You've got that conjunction there. It says, but though he caused grief. That's what the ESV translation says. Really, you could translate that and say for or because. In other words, for, verse 32 is giving you the reason why the prophet knew that the discipline wouldn't be permanent. Look, God will not cast off forever. And here's how I know that. It's because of his compassion. It's because of his steadfast love. 
Remember verse 22, they never cease, they never come to an end. Because of the character of God, the loving character of God, uh, his casting off, his discipline won't last forever. In fact, what's interesting is that this discipline that Israel received from the Lord, it's actually exactly what God promised would happen if they disobeyed. It's not that God was acting in a capricious way towards the people. He was actually doing exactly what he said he would do. And now the prophet's saying, look, if we can trust God that he's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do when he, when he punishes us, then when he says that he's going to love us forever, we, we can trust that truth as well. You see, God's plan all along was for them to suffer grief so that he could show them compassion. He knew that the only way he could show them compassion is if they repented, humbled themselves, and turned to him for grace. So what did he do? He set discipline in their life so that they would turn to him. And in all of this, he was acting, it says, in accordance with the abundance of his steadfast love. That the love that characterizes God, that the, the perfect faithful love of God, that, that he is full of and abounding in, his discipline is in perfect accord with that love. Sometimes we as parents, we struggle with that. You, you discipline your kid and you, you almost feel bad about it. And yet we see a key principle here that discipline is not inconsistent with love. It's actually consistent with love. God had to discipline them. Actually, he had to discipline them so he could save them. Jeremiah 31, the prophet sets this up for us. Of course, Jeremiah 31 is that key text that promises the new covenant with forgiveness of sins and I'll write my law in your heart. You remember that? Well, right before that promise, the Lord says in Jeremiah 31, 27, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck them up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm. That's all the setup for the new covenant. So, after the discipline, so I will watch over them to build and plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Then verse 31, skipping down, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What was all this discipline for? All this discipline was to set up the new covenant and to drive God's people towards repentance and faith in Him. Now there's a lot we could try to piece together from all of this. But just when it comes to how we deal with suffering and how we receive God's discipline, at the very least, what we can say is that God's discipline in our life, it's not a sign of his hate for us. Instead, God's discipline in our life is a sign of love. This, by the way, is the exact point that the author of Hebrews makes. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, it says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The hand of 
God is upon you by way of discipline, that's not a sign that he dislikes you. It's a sign that he dislikes your sin and that he loves you enough to, to try to work that sin out of you. That's what's going on. You say, well, how do you know if you're suffering as a believer and it's a sign of discipline versus suffering as an unbeliever? Unbelievers suffer too. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that our suffering drives us back to Christ. The suffering of an unbeliever, that's not God's discipline. It hardens them against Christ. So if, if you go through suffering and Christ is sweeter to you, in the midst of your suffering, that's God's discipline in your life. If you go through suffering and you're hardened against Christ and you hate Christ because of your suffering, then you're probably not in Christ and we probably need to set up a meeting after the service today. But for those who are in Christ, we have the promise that God loves us and because He loves us, He disciplines us. Don't you be tempted to say, man, I, I God, where's God in all this? God's where he's always been. He's reigning on high and he's ruling in your life and he's working to make you more like Christ so that you'll be able to experience the utter joy of his holiness and glory in eternity. That's where he's at. And believer, he loves you. He loves you so much. In fact, I know he loves you because for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And so if you're that whoever who believed in him, you know you have that love. As a child of God, you can be comforted knowing whatever discipline you're going through, it is in accordance with the steadfast love of God. Isn't that comforting? It's not comfortable, but it's comforting, isn't it? God's discipline is loving. And, and to this, we could also add from verse 33 that God's discipline is not malicious. God's not out to get us. God's not that meanie up in heaven with a lightning bolt waiting to get everybody. That's an unbelieving view of God, you understand, right? It's not a biblical view of God. If that's a view of God that you struggle with, understand that your view of God in that instance is informed by the world who hates God, not by the Scriptures. Verse 33 says, He does not afflict from His heart or grieve the children of men. Now there's a couple things we need to observe in this verse. First of all, notice in this verse that God does in fact afflict. It says He does not afflict from the heart, but it doesn't say He does not afflict, does it? Will God send affliction into your life by His sovereign hand? Yes, He will. Our suffering is not beyond the purview of God's suffering. But when we're in the midst of that suffering, what we need to understand is that this affliction is not, to use the language of Scripture here, it's not from the heart of the Lord. You say, what does that mean? Does that mean the Lord does something that's against His will? No, that's not what it means here. The point here is that God's discipline doesn't change his disposition towards us. God's disposition towards his people is as a loving father and savior. And when he disciplines us, that discipline doesn't then change who he is towards us. Additionally, when it says that God doesn't afflict us from the heart, 
essentially what it's saying is the Lord never afflicts people for the sake of affliction. In other words, the point is that God does not afflict with malicious intent. He does not afflict us gratuitously just because he likes to watch us suffer. That's the point here. God did not send Judah into exile to watch them suffer. He doesn't discipline his children to watch them suffer. You say, why does he do it? Well, God sends this kind of discipline for two reasons, to punish sin and purify his people. That's why God sends this kind of discipline. That's why God sends these kind of circumstances. That's where these trials, uh, they come from God. God's in control of them. But they're not just so God can watch us suffer. They're so that he can uphold the holiness of his name in punishing sins and so that he can produce holiness in his people by purifying us. The implications here are manifold, but, but one of them at its most simple level, we could say, God's not out to get you. God is not Murphy's law. And, and, and we need to be very careful about how we think and speak in that. God does not afflict us with a malicious intent. He doesn't afflict us with evil intent. He doesn't afflict us to produce sin in us. That's what James 1 goes on to say. By the way, James 1 and Lamentations chapter 3, there's unbelievable parallels between the two. I guess I shouldn't say unbelievable because the Lord is behind both of them, right? But, but God's not sending this discipline our way to, to produce sin in us. That's not what's behind it. God's discipline is not malicious. It is purposeful. He's trying to make us more like Christ. Hebrews 12, that formative passage on discipline. We saw that God disciplines those whom He loves but verse 11 goes on to say, for the, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you skip back up, verse 10, I should have read the one before it. That's a good verse too. It says, For they disciplined us for a short time, earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them. But God, He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. You want to know what the purpose of discipline in your life? It's not malicious. God's not having fun watching you squirm. God's not out to get you and zap you for every little thing that you're doing. You want to know the purpose of discipline in your life as a believer? It's so that you can share in God's holiness for all of eternity. I don't know what you want out of this life, but I can tell you there is no greater purpose and goal than that right there. And the Lord is willing to stretch us and push us and pull us. And even, to use the exact word of Lamentations chapter 3, He's willing to afflict us. If that's what it takes to sanctify us, to make us holy, to make us like Christ. Friend, it's not malicious. It's purposeful. It's purposeful. God afflicts His people in faithfulness to His character 
not just for kicks, not just for fun. The providential affliction of the Lord, it's for upholding His righteousness and producing righteousness in us. That's what God's doing. And, and when we understand that purpose, when we understand, look, this is temporary. This is an act of God's love and it's a purposeful spiritual work that God is doing. When we put all that together and understand God's discipline, uh, a few things happen. One, it strengthens our faith. If I can better understand kind of what God's doing, it's easier for me to trust Him in the midst of that. Uh, Additionally, if I can understand what God's doing in my trials, maybe not the specifics, but the ultimate purpose of it, guess what I can do? I can begin to work with that purpose and in accordance with that purpose so that instead of swimming upstream of what God is trying to do, I can swim downstream. And if I'm going to be in the rapids, I might as well go downstream anyway, right? Say, what does that mean? Well, it means I can begin to examine my life. I I can begin to look at the areas of my life. I'm not looking for, I did this and now I got to go through this. No, no, I'm looking for, you know what? In my life, my character is deficient here or I'm not like Christ here. And here's an opportunity in this trial for me to, like Christ, trust the Father. See, when we understand the truth of God's discipline, it allows us to shepherd our own hearts towards faithfulness. It helps us to see the true character of God, His love for us, and the purpose behind the affliction. And so armed with these verses, we can be confident that our temporary suffering, it does not violate the perfect righteousness of God. It does not remove the perfect love of God. Instead, it's a loving and righteous work to prepare us for holiness. Now that's a lot. That's a lot. A lot of details. But here's the thing. We got two truths under our belt already. One, you can trust God no matter what. Two, here's how He's working in discipline. If you can go into a trial and suffering armed with those two truths, that's going to help you, isn't it? That, that's going to be a pretty firm foundation that you can build upon. Now, we've got a couple more truths that we're going to try and get through next week. But as we work through Lamentations 3, we, we've seen a lot of really helpful truth. It's been a gold mine. And as we keep digging deeper in a gold mine, what we see is, as God's people, no matter what our circumstances might be, God is trustworthy. And His loving discipline is for an eternally good purpose. And that's enough to feed our souls and propel us to endurance, isn't it?